Morning, everyone. Well, this week I've been digesting some research. You heard a little bit of it last week, and I'm going to bring a little bit more to you this morning. Research that's recently come out about the state of Aussies and how we think about religion and spirituality in 2022. And uh, when asked, when Aussies are asked, what is the most attractive thing you find about Jesus? What's the most attractive thing about Jesus? What do you think the top answer or answers might be? Well, I'll give them to you. Number one, love. Number two, hope. Number three, care. Interesting. These are fantastic things to associate with Jesus. And depending on what you mean by love, the Bible may agree with you. But the Bible is more explicit about what the number one thing about Jesus is. His number one achievement, from which all other good things flow, but without which all the other good things are useless to us. And the number one thing about Jesus the Bible holds out is salvation. It's actually ranked number seven, according to Aussies. My job this morning is to show you that the Bible says, no, 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 the number one thing that you need to, that I need to appreciate about Jesus is the salvation that he brings. And we're going to see that as we work our way through the book of Hebrews. We're up to chapter 9 this morning, which is a really thick chapter. By that I don't mean it's really long, though it is. It's really dense in its content. You might have found that as you work through it this week. One of the reasons it's so dense is that it actually spans the covers of the Bible. In one chapter, we actually find the major movements of the entire Bible. As we saw last week, the Bible is not just a bunch of religious, spiritual, pithy sayings. It has a plot. It has movement. It is going somewhere as God does stuff in history. And so my plan this morning is to take us through the five major movements that just this one chapter gives us covering the whole Bible. So if you're with us this morning, you've wondered, what is the Bible about? I haven't even come close to figuring out what this whole thing is. You've picked a good week to be here. We are going to cover the whole Bible in 40 minutes or less. And as we do that, it is my job, and I want you to see just what the most important thing to associate with Jesus is and how it connects to our greatest need in life. Okay, that's where we're going. How about I pray for God's help to do that. Father God, we do thank you that you're a speaking God and that your words have been recorded and that they have been faithfully preserved so that we might hear you speak as we have already this morning. And so as we come to this word, we pray, please, that you might remove our distractions. There are all sorts of things that we come with this morning. Please, might we be able to set them aside long enough that you might draw our attention to what you have done in this world, what you are doing in this world, where you are taking all things in your Son. And so please we ask that we might be stirred maybe for the first time or the thousandth time as to who your Son Jesus is. And we pray it in his name. Amen. Okay, five movements. Three of them are going to go really quick, I promise. Two of them will slow down and drill into. The first movement of the Bible is 
creation. It's actually mentioned twice in Hebrews chapter 9. And of course the opening pages of the Bible begin with God creating. Now the, the key thing for us to capture here is creation reveals to us a fundamental truth of our reality. And that is there is more to reality than what we can observe with our natural senses. There is a super and above natural reality, a heavenly reality, in which the eternal God dwells. His spirit, his eternal, in him is life itself, and there is a moment when he speaks into being all creation, making humanity at the peak, the, the pinnacle of creation, not like any other creature, but made in God's image, made to have a special relationship with the God of heaven. There's the first big movement of the Bible, mentioned in verse 11 and 26 of Hebrews 9. Here's the second. Like I said, we'll move quickly through some of them. It's what is called the fall. We cannot make any sense of this part of the Bible that we've got before us this morning apart from appreciating the fall. It's a movement of humanity down. It's called a fall from grace, where humanity falls from our honoured state in being made in special close relationship with God. There's a break between heaven and earth, if you like. There's a break, a fracture between those realities as human sin enters the picture. Our first parents throwing off the rule of God, relationship with God, seeing it as a barrier to be scaled rather than freedom, and pursuing freedom elsewhere, but finding slavery. And every child since, every human being, has shown themselves to be a child of the fall. Those who do not want God, do not want to live under him in special relationship with him, and instead of finding freedom, we've instead found ourselves enslaved. Enslaved to sin, to corruption, and standing under the judgment of God, what's called the wrath of God. We've already sung about that and prayed about that this morning. What's the wrath of God? It's not a divine dummy spit, it is a measured, right response of God to evil but it destroys us. It's the justice of God, but destroys us. We've committed spiritual treason. Every human being standing guilty before God, under the wrath of God. So we have the creation. Hot on its heels, tragically, we have the fall, and this is the reality that we live in. It explains why the world is the way that it is. But here's the thing. The rest of the Bible then sets out to deal with this problem. How can sinners again draw near to a holy God and not be destroyed? How can a righteous God who longs to have sinners back to himself do that without excusing their evil? This is the problem or the, or the question that the Bible then sets out to answer. Which brings us to the third key movement that Hebrews chapter 9 calls the first covenant. The first covenant. Have a look there in your Bibles. Chapter 9, verse 1. 
Now, the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. Now, he's referencing a moment in history, somewhere around 1400 BC, where God makes a covenant with the people of Israel through the man Moses. You might have heard of him. Now, a covenant is is a contract or agreement that would set the terms of relationship between two parties. So God makes a contract with a people called Israel, and key to that covenant is the tabernacle. The tabernacle was God's chosen place where he would dwell on earth. Now, of course, it's, it's symbolic in some sense. It's not as if God is, is kind of constrained to a tent because that's what the tabernacle is. For 400 years, it's this portable tent before it would become a permanent temple in Jerusalem. And yet God has chosen for this to, to mark, to symbolise his presence on earth. And the big point that these first 10 verses want to make is the distance that the people were from God. See, verse 2 to 10, he he starts unpacking some of those details that we read back in Leviticus as well. Look at verse 3. Behind the second curtain was a room called the Most Holy Place, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered Ark of the Covenant. So the tabernacle, I've got a bit of a basic sketch here, is is a tent, like I said, that would move about uh, two main rooms and behind that second curtain, the most holy place. And then the people of Israel would live, would dwell around the tabernacle, around the tent. So God was in their midst, but one of the key functions of the tabernacle, as we'll see, is they can't draw near to God whenever or however they like. That's the point at, of verse 6. When everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room. So the priests go into the holy place to carry out their ministry. But only the high priest entered the inner room, symbolising the dwelling place of God, and that only once a year and never without blood which he offered for his sins and the sins of the people. The big point of the tabernacle under this covenant is keep your distance. God is saying to the people, keep your distance. That's the big point of verse 8. God, the Holy Spirit, was showing that by this, by the covenant that included the tabernacle, The way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. Keep your distance, lest you be destroyed. Now, this this is such a clash for Aussies, isn't it? With the way that we would like to think about God. I mean, really? Surely God would be appreciative if I showed him some attention. You know, when I get around to it in whatever way that I feel like doing it. Well, we now have a king on the throne, don't we? We can say that. Do Aussies really think that we ought to be able to fly to London, get on a red bus, rock up to the palace gates of Buckingham Palace, just waltz on through, crack open a VB with King Chuck? How you going, mate? Just, I thought of you, thought I'd come say good day, see how you're doing? 
I mean, Aussies might like to think we ought to be able to do that, but how do you think it would go if we tried? Those guys that never blink in a red jacket and a big black fluffy hat with a, with a knife on the end of their rifle? It makes sure it wouldn't happen. We can't just waltz into the presence of King Charles. How much less can we just waltz into the presence of God when we like, how we like? That is the big point of the tabernacle under this first covenant. It is God saying to the people, keep your distance. And there's some examples of people who don't and are destroyed. But here's the thing. God is love. And God graciously longs to again have sinners draw near to himself, that he might actually draw near to them. So he makes a way. He makes a way for unworthy sinners who would be consumed rightly by his wrath to actually approach him. Now the way under the first covenant was the way of priests and it was bloody. Look at verse 7. Only the high priest entered the inner room and that only once a year and never without blood. Blood is mentioned 11 times just in this chapter. And for some of us, the the idea, the sound even of the word blood causes us to squirm and be uncomfortable. We can't avoid it as we come to this chapter of the Bible. In fact, if you were a person of God, a follower of God under the first covenant, it was your regular experience. The sacrificial system was a part of this covenant that God had given a, a way of relating to each other where animals like goats, calves, bulls, lambs, um, pigeons were were slaughtered regularly. Why? Why the sacrificial system, which especially to our precious 21st century ears just sounds so barbaric? So why? Well, for at least two reasons. Number one, they served as a reminder of sin. A reminder of sin. Come back to Leviticus again with me, chapter 4. Keep something in Hebrews 9, but come back to Leviticus chapter 4, which is one of the documents that forms this first covenant that God gave his people through Moses. Leviticus chapter 4, which is one of the many parts, which is talking about how the sacrifices were to be conducted. And this is a sin offering for someone who has sinned before God. What do they do about it? Well, have a look at verse 32. If someone brings a lamb as their sin offering, they are to bring a female without defect. They are to lay their hands on its head and slaughter it for a sin offering at the place where the burnt offering is slaughtered. Imagine that this morning. As you're getting ready to come to church, you go out into your backyard and into the pen and pick out the most choice little lamb that you've got. And you bring it to church and instead of lining up for a sweet flat white, you bring it out to the front, you put your hands on its head as some bloke slits its throat. That 
was the coming to church experience for the people under the first covenant. It was a bloody experience. What was the point? Well, it served as a vivid reminder of sin. God is holy. I'm a sinner. And therefore, my sin is so serious against this holy God that it deserves the judgment of death. And so this animal, in its innocent death, would be a reminder of just how serious our sin is. There's a second purpose of the sacrifice. It was a reminder of sin, but it was also for the forgiveness of sin. It functioned as a substitute. As though the sin was taken off the man or the woman and transferred to the animal as they put their hands on its head. Recognising that, that what is due to me is actually being transferred to this innocent animal and its blood is spilled. Its death is brought about. Look at the last part of verse 35 of Leviticus 4. In this way, the priest will make atonement for them, for, this, for the sin they have committed, and they will be forgiven by God. The animal sacrifice system, bloody as it was, was a reminder of sin, but it also functioned as a substitute that God might actually forgive sin. Now, if you're going... How does, how does my sin against God, against other human beings, simply get forgiven by touching a lamb? Well, that's a good question to ask and one that the writer will be answering as we go on. So did the sacrifices work under this first covenant? Yes and no. Let's start with a no. No, they didn't work for at least two reasons according to Hebrews 9. Come back there with me. We see in verse 9, the first reason these animal sacrifices didn't work is that a guilty conscience remained for the person offering the sacrifice. Verse 9, the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshipper. A subjective appreciation of guilt remained. We'll push more into this next week. The second reason they didn't work is that they were endless. They never actually dealt with the problem of sin because you had to keep showing up with your sacrifice. You had to keep laying your hand on the head of the animal as it was slit. Again and again and again. There might have been some sense of relief and forgiveness at first, but then it would wear off and you'd become very aware of my guilt again. I need to come back and repeat it. It's, life is full of those things, aren't they? Um, mowing the lawn. You, know, you mow the lawn, you step back, and you just, you just feel really good. <laughs> look, look at this. this. This is amazing. And a week later, it's laughing at you again. Um, well, that's if the sun would ever come out and the grass to grow. It'd laugh at you again. Or house cleaning. You've got people coming over and you want to get the house clean and, and you put all that work into it and it looks sweet and then the kids just come. Why bother? Clean it up again. The sacrificial system was just like that. There might have been some temporary relief, but it wasn't lasting. A guilty conscience remained and I had to keep coming back to present this sacrifice. No, the sacrifices 
didn't work. And yes, they did. By not working, they did exactly what God intended them to do. By not working. There's this built-in design flaw from God, which the text says it's an illustration, it's a parable, it's this 1,400-year demonstration of this isn't going to work. We cannot draw near to God on our own. We will die. We cannot draw near to God through the blood of animals. How could that deal with the problem of human sin? What hope do sinners have? Well, this brings us to the fourth movement and to the very centre point and high point of the Bible, the New Covenant. Some 1,400 years after that first covenant, Jesus shows up. And as the Gospels record his life, their biographies of Jesus, the fourth Gospel, do you know what the first words for Jesus are in the first scene as he shows up? They go like this. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb is here. What a nickname for the hero of the story. Can you imagine calling Russell Crowe the gladiator? Lamb. Vin Diesel in any of his movies. The Lamb, the hero. What's the go with calling the hero of the story the lamb? Well, it's not. Many Christians, I hear them. It's not because it's getting at how tender Jesus is. How meek and mild and, and, and gentle. And Now, he may be those things, but not because he's the lamb. With 1,400 years of first covenant background, when John says, look, here comes the lamb of God, we're supposed to think... He's a dead man walking. He's a dead man walking. And so we come to the high point of the Bible, summarised verse 26. But he, that's Jesus Christ, has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. This is the drumbeat of the chapter, the centre of the Bible. Just remember who this Jesus Christ is. It's been some time since we looked at chapter 1, but the book opens by letting us know just who Jesus is. He is the eternal Son of God, the exact representation of his being, the one through whom the universe was created. This is the eternal God of heaven here on earth. Come as the man, Jesus Christ. Bringing in his coming the culmination of ages, the, the, the summing up, the fulfilment of every second, every day, every century prior was waiting and anticipating for this day. For this coming, Jesus has come as our great high priest, but with a staggering twist. 
He is the high priest who is also the sacrifice. A man, the sacrifice. Verse 11, when Christ came as high priest of the, good, of the things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands, that is to say not part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. Jesus goes into the very presence of holy God and he's destroyed. The gospel accounts record how it happened. Jesus died at the hands of Jewish and Roman officials, yes, but more, he was offering himself as a sacrifice on the altar. His blood was spilled to the point of death. When the Bible talks about blood, when we talk about blood, when we sing about blood, we're not talking about the, the red, you know, thick stuff. It's a reference to his life and then death. Because when blood isn't where it should be, there's death. Jesus goes to the cross to actually achieve forgiveness. To catch this, it's a common question. Were the people of the old covenant really forgiven? Well, yes. Under the first covenant, God forgave sins provisionally. As Jesus comes to bring the new covenant, God defeats sin decisively. Sin was forgiven under the first covenant as people brought an animal, but only as the sinner looked through the sacrifice to the mercy of God. It wasn't the animal. It was looking through the animal to the mercy of God. Sin is forgiven under the new covenant as the sinner looks to the merciful provision of the sacrifice of the Son of God. As we actually look to Jesus. As he goes to the cross, God's wrath was poured out on him. See, for millennia, the sin of people who had looked to God's mercy and had been forgiven, but that sin hadn't actually been dealt with. It's piled up, if you like. It doesn't go anywhere. It needs to be dealt with. And as Jesus dies on the cross, all of that and all the sin of those who are yet to come who would look to him is poured out white hot on Jesus and it destroys him. He's destroyed not for his own sin. Look at verse 14 there. He offered himself unblemished to God. He's the one and only man who has lived a sinless life. Honouring the covenant of relationship with God. And so, as God gives up his son who willingly goes to the cross... It's as if we sinners were to go and put our hands on Jesus' head as a crown of thorns is crushed into it and as nails are driven through his hands and his feet and as he hangs there, suffering the judgment of God. 
That wasn't his sin, that was mine. But because of who he is, the eternal son of God, he is of such infinite worth that his sacrifice is sufficient to fully and finally pay for sin. So that he would cry out with his last words, it is finished. Think of your worst possible sin. Jesus' blood, his death, was enough to cover that. Your sin won't go further than the gracious provision of Jesus dying for you. And as Jesus dies and quite literally takes his last breath, the Gospels record a really profound detail which might seem odd, though it shouldn't to us this morning. The eyewitnesses record it. As soon as Jesus died, the curtain of the temple was torn into from top to bottom. That's the curtain that guarded the way into the most holy place that only the high priest once a year with blood could go. Someone's gone through it. And now there is no need for it. But get this, it's not torn from the ground up as a man might be able to do. This thing is so high, it is torn from the top down. God has done away with it. God has sent his son to go in to the most holy place. Verse 24. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Implied here is Jesus' resurrection. He didn't stay dead. Three days later, he was raised to life. And his ascension, 40 days later, the man Jesus with a real body ascended to the right hand of God, now seated on the throne, ruling and reigning. Which brings us to our moment right now in history. Jesus, seated on the throne, what does all of this mean for us? What do we do with this? Lots, but one big thing, which is connected to the biggest thing that Jesus offers, draw near to God. Appreciate how impossible that was, how possible it is, and now do it. Come over to chapter 10, verse 19. We'll come back to this in a couple of weeks. But this is where he lands all of this. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, not us, not our good works, not anything we've done or not done, but by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain, that is his body, and since we have a great Priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings. How do you draw near to a holy God, sinner? How do I? By looking away from yourself and to a saviour. 
to Jesus, to trust him. That's faith, trust. Brings you into the very presence of Almighty God. You cannot get any closer. For Jesus sits at the right hand of God. He mediates for us and by faith in him, that's where we are. Let me point out a bunch of ways this can go wrong in religious settings. You draw near to God through faith in Jesus, not religion. That's the big point this book is going to keep making. There is nothing that religious observances or behaviours or rituals can do to bring me near to God. All it does is bring a guilty conscience and endless, useless atonement. And so just appreciate what we have as New Covenant believers, what we do each week as we gather. We gather without a goat. We do rock up and enjoy saying hello to brother, sister as we line up for a coffee. And we do gather around the Lamb, the Son of God, who gave himself for us. It's not religion, it's Jesus. How do you draw near to God? Through faith in Jesus, not pilgrimage. Thousands of people go on pilgrimages to places such as Spain, the Camino Way or Walk. Lots of Christians have it a bucket list thing to get to Jerusalem to retrace the steps of their Lord. But hear this, there is not a shred more of God in Jerusalem as there is in King Cumber. Now, that's not to say that that may not be a, a nice experience, a good experience. It's not to say it's a wrong thing to do. But it is a luxury of modern middle-class Australians, right? To jump on a plane. For 2,000 years, most of the people of God never left their village and they were never nearer to God if they had their trust in Jesus. There's no place for you to go to get closer to God. Therefore, you draw near to God through faith in Jesus, not in nature. This is our more common one of the cases you hear people talking about. Feeling closer to God as I get out into the sea or go on a bushwalk. Now, sure, there, there can be something about actually um, removing distractions to be able to focus on the Lamb of God, the object of my presence with God. But through faith in Christ, even on a crowded train, even in a noisy house with kids crying the whole time, with your faith in Jesus, you cannot get any nearer to God. It's not your experience. It's a saviour that draws you near to God and you've been joined to him by faith. How do you draw near to God? Through faith in Jesus, not through the mediator of music. Now, music has been a great gift from God to his people for millennia under the first covenant and again in the new covenant. But more recently, only really the last 30 years, there's been a particular movement in the Christian world which has made so much of music, it's presented as though it's a mediator to draw nearer to God. So much so that one of the leaders of this movement has said, use the expression, we praise our way into the presence of God. What's meant by that is there's 
There's someone up front, there's a worship leader up front who will lead a band in music and song and a congregation and work to get us to to such a high point that we're actually transported into heaven and now actually able to draw near to God. Don't hear me wrong. I love music. I love song. It is a gift of God for his people. As was it Isaiah who said earlier, what... What a wonderful thing to be able to use music to share the Word of God, to declare the Word of God. But we do all of that not to draw near to God, but as those who are near to God. Some of you need to actually think about, is bumbling and mumbling actually the best expression of how close you are to God in Christ? But be very careful in being caught up in any thinking that you're missing out because there's another experience that will draw you... It is the blood of Christ, trusting in him, that's how we're lifted up into heaven. And so I trust every week as we gather, we will have a greater sense and taste of who we are in heaven. Now the fifth and final movement, I haven't forgotten it, but to touch on it very quickly. Hebrews chapter 9 calls it salvation, the end. Verse 27 Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many and he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Very quickly, this life is not it. The best is yet to come for those who are waiting for Jesus. What does waiting look like? Well, we don't have lots of time to unpack it now, but it definitely doesn't mean idleness. Have a look back at verse 14. Christ, and trusting in Christ, cleanses our consciences from guilt, from acts that lead to death, so that we may serve the living God. Waiting isn't standing still waiting for a train. It is getting busy to serve the living God now that we can. Now that we can come near, now that we can offer ourselves not to draw near, but as those who are near to serve him. Is that you? Is there an orientation to your life that is waiting, that is looking and using whatever capacity you have, great or small, to do your best to serve the living God now? And for those of us who know Jesus, who have been drawn near to him, it's life-changing. It really is the good life. Let me finish just by sharing a little bit more of this research that I've come across. When asked, Australians asked how satisfied you are with all of these different areas, there's a striking difference between the responses of those who regularly go to church and those who have no religion. Relationships. Spiritual well-being, sense of purpose, contentment, mental health, personal growth, work, dealing with stress, physical health. We don't hear that on the 7 o'clock news, do we? You want the good life? Come meet Jesus, who's given himself to draw you to God. But the other observation I'd make about this is, I don't know if you can read those percentages, they're kind of 64 is the top one there. Churchgoers, Christians are ahead 
but we're still a long way from 100%. And so if you kind of rank yourself down at zero, down at five, down at ten, for some reason, I know some of you would. That may be true. But if you have salvation, you have everything. Because it's not all here yet. The coming of Jesus brings it decisively. But he's returning, what to bring? Salvation. The fullness of it, all the benefits of it, where all of these things will be completely restored. Never again to fade, to be frustrated. So we're not coming to Jesus to get these things. We're coming to Jesus because he's worthy, because we desperately need him. It is life-changing and we wait and we long for the day when salvation comes in all of its fullness. Keep waiting. Keep trusting. Keep drawing near through faith in Christ and Christ alone. Let me pray that that would be the case for us. Oh, Father God, how good and gracious and generous you are to such an undeserving people. For those among us, who have not appreciated their desperate need for salvation, who have been trusting in all sorts of things, please make it so clear to them this morning that it is your son Jesus and him alone that will draw them near to you. Work that great miracle, please, of faith, looking to Jesus as our saviour. For those of us who have, may we go nowhere else. Where else would we go? Please keep our faith in your son who bled and died for us to give us everything, to give us you. We pray this in his name. Amen.